If you have a Bible, and I hope you do, either on a tablet or a phone or an actual book, or if you're using the Hebrews, journals, whatever it may be, if you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 2. And you can join me. I'm going to read verses 10 through 18. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he, speaking of God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, so far in our journey in the book of Hebrews, I believe this is Sermon 4, um, this, this book, this letter, I call it a sermonic letter, and that's something I read. I didn't come up with that on my own. But this, this book, letter, sermonic letter, we've highlighted over and over and over again that the theme is all about Jesus, and specifically that Jesus is greater. He is greater. From start to finish, He is greater than everything. That is the theme of Hebrews. The opening four verses of chapter 1, we noted in the first message that it sums up the truth that Jesus is greater because of who He is, His person, and what He's done, His work. And it begins to unpack things that the whole letter, the whole sermonic letter, the whole book are going to unpack right in verses 1 through 4. Then we saw in the second message, chapter 1, beginning of verse 5, and, and really it culminates in today's text that I read, okay, we learned that Jesus is greater than the angels. And angels are magnificent and spectacular, but, but they are not greater than Jesus. In fact, no, Jesus is greater than angels for a multi-number uh, of reasons that the author lays out. And don't forget either, the author, he's quoting scripture. He's not just writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which would have been fine, and, and telling us truth, which that would have been fine if 
that's what God intended. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer is quoting from the Old Testament, as we consider it, the Hebrew Scriptures, over and over and over again, building the case that these passages that had a meaning in their context when they were first written and given and spoken, nonetheless, they, they find their fulfillment in Jesus. And so all throughout the end of chapter, the middle and end of chapter 1, and even into chapter 2, he's just quoting and piling on passages. And so uh, chapter 2 began, we, we looked at that, uh, the first warning, there's actually six in this whole letter, we're going to kind of come to them at various points. And there was that warning. In light of Jesus being greater than angels, the writer says, don't drift from or neglect Jesus and his salvation. Like, because he's greater and he's done all this. Be, be aware lest you, you drift from and neglect. And we've talked about how easy it is to drift. Just imagine being a boat out in the San Francisco Bay. You're not going to stay in one place, very likely. I mean, even our own Lake Sonoma, it gets pretty windy, and you don't stay in one place. You drift unless you are anchored. And, and so it's an analogy that in the Christian life, this great Savior, this great one Jesus, and the salvation he brings, if we aren't careful, we'll, we'll drift from it. We'll neglect it. And, and that's a warning to Christians, those whom God has saved, who believe it, that we need to be diligent. The, the Christian life is not opposed to to effort. The Christian life is opposed to earning. So we, we, we exert effort in response to all that God has done in this great Savior, this great salvation. And so we, we love Him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love our neighbor as ourselves. We, we spend time alone with Him. We pray. We gather these ordinary means of grace. Uh, we do those things not to earn anything, but, but in response to who God is, what He's done, what He's called us to, and we, we have to be careful not to drift from or neglect it. But, but if there's anyone listening that has yet to embrace this great Savior, it's a warning too. It's a warning found in those opening four verses. How will we escape, he says, this great salvation? If, if God in the old covenant uh, fulfilled His word and, and there was judgment in, in what He called people to, and if they didn't respond, well... Well, one day, this, this son, the son who has come in the flesh, and that begins to get into our text some more today, uh, he's coming a second time, and, and there's judgment coming one day, final judgment. And how will we escape if we drift from and neglect? And so it's a call to the Christian, to the believer, and to those who, who haven't yet believed to consider Jesus. And, and if you're not a believer, if you have questions, you've come to the right place, uh, this is, this is a church where asking questions is good and welcomed, and uh, to have some doubts is fine. Like Thomas in the Bible doubted, and Jesus didn't rebuke him. Um, we, we don't want to compare doubting with unbelief. There's a difference. It's good to doubt and to scratch our head and to want to unpack things and wrestle through things. I think God uh, is, is Open to that. I believe that. And we are as a church to have some doubts and to need some answers. And there's great resources, great books, great things to listen to. Over the last 2,000 years, God has provided the church with these apologists, these ones who have, have communicated well how to defend and support and, and uh, give the foundation we need to, to what we believe. But, but unbelief is an issue of the heart. And so um, all that to say, if you find yourself with questions... You've come to the right place. Our desire is to teach the scriptures, 
and to, to meet with one another and to answer questions, to point you to resources and, and the like. Last week, in this brief little review lesson here, at the start we were in verses 5 through 9 of chapter 2, and, and there we began to understand the incarnation, the, the coming of the Son. So, so the, the second person of the triune God, God the Son, came. And, and when he came, he took on humanity. He didn't leave his divinity and only became a human. No, he, he became the God-man. And he remains the God-man. So he lived his life and then he was crucified. He was buried. He rose and then uh, he has ascended where now he is at the right hand of the Father, the God-man, uh, Jesus, who, as we're going to hear today, there's a lot more truth about him. And, and it says, look at verse 9. We see him, speaking of Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. So he's still talking about how Jesus is greater than angels, even though in coming as a human, uh, there's, there's an idea that he's a little lower in terms of his, his stature and whatnot. Namely, Jesus. And there is the first time the author now calls the Son of God by his name on earth, Jesus. He's crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Don't ever forget that. It's, it's this upside-down nature of the way God works. That, that cross uh, and that place where Jesus died is, in fact, um, the means of glory and honor. The suffering of death led to this glory and honor. And all that, it says at the end of verse 9, is that by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everyone. Substitutionary atonement, the theologians call it. It was by the grace of God. We always think of the grace of God being the good things we need, and God gives more grace, and, and so on. And yes, it's true, but by the grace of God, we needed a substitute to taste death for us. And he did. And he did. And isn't it great hearing the kids up there? having fun. So feel free to keep turning around and looking at them. And, and I can just look at them and you won't know that I'm paying attention to them. But I know that you're not paying attention to me and I'm just kidding. It's good. It's good. You know, it's interesting. In our day, if we were to talk to someone who doesn't yet believe uh, that Jesus is the Savior, the Messiah, the Promised One, we probably wouldn't have any problem convincing people that there was this person named Jesus of Nazareth who lived some 2,000 years ago, this human uh, who, who was a rabbi and whatnot, we would have a hard time convincing them of his deity, that, that he was God. And so a lot of apologetics goes to proving, and a lot of it is right here in Hebrews, right? The angels worship him, and, and Jesus, you know, took worship, and he called himself the Son. And, and so there's lots of reason from the Scriptures to show that Jesus believed he was God, and of course, um, the proof of the resurrection and, and whatnot, so, so for us, we kind of take for granted his humanity. But part of what this passage that, that we're looking at today is getting at, and really in the first days and years of the Christian movement, there were groups that had a hard time believing in his full humanity. They, they thought, okay, God has come, but there's no way God would take on humanity, right? Uh, and so it's interesting here that the author in, in focusing so much on the incarnation is really trying to stress, no, this, this one, the Son of God came and he was fully God in coming, but he took on full humanity. Yes, the chickens agree. And that is precisely what I'm trying to do. What the writer to the Hebrews has begun to discuss here in 
Uh, We started in it last week, verses 5 to 9, but now really, what you heard me read, verses 10 through 18, the, the decisive turn is toward all of this. Now, these verses that I read are amazingly rich. I, I, was, I was joking uh, already this morning with someone about this passage. I, I had to shift gears about four, five, six times this week because uh, just so you know, what I typically do, especially when we're going to go through a book of the Bible, I, I try to lay it out and I read through it. And Hebrews is a big book, um, but I try to break it up into manageable pieces for a 30 to 40 minute sermon and, you know, uh, uh, keeping in mind holidays and various things. And, and so there is a calendar, there's a plan, uh, for, for all of this. And so it seemed perfect that, yeah, 10 through 18, that that's a nice, what fancy smart people call a pericope, nice section of, of the text that, that is a unit. And, uh, surely that'll be a good, uh, set of verses for a sermon. But, um, this passage is loaded with, with so much. And so I appreciate what one writer noted and as I was reading this week. He said this, and I'm quoting this very smart person. In these verses, 10 through 18, the interpreter, and that, so that could be you and me, the pastor, the preacher, wh- whoever's trying to understand it. In these verses, the interpreter confronts a fairly complex passage with unfamiliar terminology Old Testament quotations, the uses of which are not readily apparent, and logical, logical constructs that must be dissected for clarity. Oh yes, all of that I found to be very, very true. And so my point is not simply to get your sympathy this morning, uh, but rather to tell you that uh, we are going to spend a bit more time in verses 10 to 18 than I had intended. And so actually, this morning, we are going to look at one verse. We're going to spend our time in verse 10. And let that be the introduction, and it really serves as the introduction to 10 to 18. And Lord willing, we will be back in 10 to 18 next week. And I'm not in a rush to get through Hebrews. We have a long way to go, um, and uh, I hope you're not either. Um, you know, Hebrews is going to tell us in chapter 4, verse 12, a verse maybe you memorized somewhere along the way, that the Word of God is living and active sharper than a two-edged sword. And so God's word does something. And so there's no need to rush. There's no need to rush. We can, of course, take too long and it can be too much in the trees and weeds and whatnot, but uh, we we don't need to rush. And as I thought about it, prayed about it, wrestled with this complex passage, verse 10 seemed seemed enough for today. So in looking at verse 10, here's what I hope we will accomplish. We're going to see just in this one verse that it speaks of the entirely appropriate suffering of Jesus. The entirely appropriate suffering of Jesus, who our writer calls our founder or, or um, the, the pioneer of our faith, the author of our faith. We are going to see the entirely appropriate, the fitting nature of the suffering of Jesus, our, our founder. So let's look at that in the time we have left this morning. Verse 10. Let me reread verse 10, and I'm going to read it in ESV first, uh, which is Bible translation I use, and I think most of you have. And then I'm going to read from the CSB also, just so you hear another translation that conveys the idea. It's always good uh, to compare translations. So from the ESV, verse 10. For it was fitting that he, 
And this is speaking of God the Father at this point, again, connecting back to verse 9. For it was fitting that God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory. Did you hear that line in the song we sang a few minutes ago? It's from here. Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now let me read from the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible Translation. For in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was entirely appropriate. That's where I got my sermon main idea. It was entirely appropriate that God, for whom and through whom all things exist, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. So if you were able to hear, there's a couple of words that are a little different, and I hope as we just kind of walk through this, you'll, you'll see why one translation used one, and, and there's reasons and, and good reasons for both translations, and it, it makes a lot of sense. So let's, let's look at this passage again, and let's see how it is entirely appropriate that the founder of our salvation suffered, that Jesus suffered. So, beginning, right in the beginning. In the ESV, you'll, you'll, you'll see it there. For it was fitting, right at the beginning. And that's because that word fitting or appropriate, as you heard it in the CSB, in the original, that's the first word. And, and languages are all different in terms of the, the stress and the priority. But in the Greek language, word order matters. And so words that are at the beginning of a sentence are put there for emphasis. And so the writer had the word fitting or appropriate placed in the first spot for that emphasis. Fitting. It was appropriate. It was, it was appropriately fitting for this to happen, that God, right? That's who the he refers to, as I mentioned, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Listen to how Jesus put it. He doesn't use that same word translated fitting, but, but hear him say essentially the same thing in Luke 24 after the resurrection on Resurrection Sunday when he's walking with some of the disciples who are confused. Listen to what Jesus says. Was it not necessary? Right, that's a synonym for fitting or appropriate. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? You know, sometimes we, we, we ask the question, I know I did as a young believer, I've talked about this with my kids, the, the idea of, could God have done it, that is, save humanity any other way? And, and so we like to pose that, you know, it kind of gets into the whole, you know, can God make a rock that is too heavy for him to lift, you know, and, and that's a fallacy um, because of the nature of who God is uh, and so on, but... But it, we ask those kinds of questions. And, and so could God have done it any differently? The scriptures say over and over in various ways, and here it is in verse 10, and you just heard me read from Jesus, that it was fitting, it was appropriate, it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Or, or again, the way the writer of the Hebrews says it, it was fitting that God, the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist. Maybe you are hearing Romans 11, if you know that passage. At the end of Romans 11, the Apostle Paul says, for, 
for from him and through him and to him are all things, right? The God-centeredness of God. And the scriptures are all about Godward focus, right? So we, so we hear, hear the writer say, for it was fitting that God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, it was fitting, it was appropriate, it was necessary. In bringing many sons to glory, and that phrase, we'll, we'll unpack it some more, but that's talking about us being saved. For sons to be brought to glory, and it includes daughters, I'll explain in a moment, that, that's speaking of the great salvation, that's speaking of the redemption and all the different nuances of, of, of our salvation. And bringing many sons to glory should make the founder, the pioneer, the author, different ways to translate that word, of their salvation, that's your salvation or mine, lost my place, perfect through suffering. So the scriptures say this over and over again. It was fitting, it was appropriate, it's necessary that Jesus went to the cross. It wasn't cosmic child abuse as progressive Christians and liberal Christianity says. No, it was fitting, it was appropriate, it was necessary for the God-man to live the life we can't live, to go to the cross in our place, that substitutionary atonement that the scriptures are speaking of. It was fitting. It was appropriate. It was necessary. Notice that the text says that it is the son's affliction. Really, we, we could say it was ordered by, by God. Notice it's by, it was fitting that he, and that he, like I said already, is pulling back to God the Father at the end of verse 9. It was fitting that God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, right? He orders everything. He orders everything. He's completely sovereign over everything. That the Son would back into, again, the stuff we've read already, what it says here in verse 10, that he would suffer, and that's speaking of specifically suffering on the cross, uh, that, that he would taste death for uh, everyone in the end of verse 9. God ordered it. God ordained it. And God used means. He used sinful humanity. And of course, he used the Romans and, and, and the whole deal. But, but, but God, for whom and by whom all things exist. God the Father wasn't caught off guard. It wasn't plan B or C. God, God ordained all of this. And the scriptures speak of this in all kinds of ways. It's in Acts 4, when the church, having been persecuted, gathers and prays, they recognize that God did all that by using Pilate and so forth, but it was God who did it. And, and so the scriptures have no problem speaking of God ordering all of this stuff. God is the great cause and the great director of everything pertaining to our salvation, our redemption. He's the great cause and director of everything that happens in life. And that brings up questions too, and that's okay as well. And we can ask those questions another time. The text continues. It says that God used the son's death, Jesus' death, and here we now get to this phrase, in bringing many sons to glory. Now, thank you, God, that I have two daughters. And in having daughters, that's helped me appreciate the fact that uh, they can feel often excluded when they hear verses like this in the Bible. And I've had conversations with my daughters at various points. Why does it say sons? 
And, and you may have caught, when I read the CSB, it says sons and daughters, okay? So, so why is that? Is, does God only like boys and, and men? What, what's the deal? And, and no, he, he doesn't only like boys and men. That's, that's not the deal. There's several reasons why the text says sons here, and that is what it says in the original. The, the CSB is giving some interpretation, and it's correct. It is correct to interpret and apply it. He did bring sons and daughters to glory when he's saved. But, but the reason it, it says sons uh, is for a couple of reasons. One, just in the context, you should have heard by now over these weeks, the writer's been talking about the son, the son of God. And so he's keeping that same language going. If there's the son who's the true heir of all things, that son who's the heir, he's bringing other sons. And so the language stays the same. Uh, we're not going to get to it today, but down in verse 12, he's going to quote Psalm 22. And, and there in Psalm 22, the writer is going to speak about brother and, and the older brother. And Jesus is referred to as my older brother. And so this language is, is, is all the same. And so the earliest readers would hear those connections. Oh, the son of God, the heir of all things. He's brought more sons. And in that context of the ancient world, especially, sons were the, the heirs. The oldest son was the rightful heir. Even if there had been an older daughter, that, that older daughter wouldn't have been the, the appropriate heir. And we don't understand that in our day, for the most part. We think, no, no, the firstborn son or daughter gets to be the oldest in the heir. And, and so th- things like that are different culturally. And so that's where we do interpret it out and say, yes. The older brother, the son of God, by by bringing many sons and daughters to glory, because of the new covenant in Christ, it is sons and daughters who share in the inheritance. It's not just sons like in ancient antiquity in a family. No, no. Under the new covenant with the coming of Jesus, the older brother, the son of God, now men and women share in that inheritance. So it's remarkably inclusive once we take the time to, to understand that. Even though the language says sons only, it's, it's speaking of sons and daughters. And again, that line from the song we sing, that's why it was chosen, how deep the Father's love for us, that he would bring many sons and daughters to glory. In Romans eight seventeen, again, the Apostle Paul says, and if children, so speaking of the sons and daughters, then heirs, see, and, and we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are fellow heirs with the Son, our older brother, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so the Christian is called to suffer, to take up our cross, deny ourselves, and follow Jesus. Not a popular message in our day, and really not the message at this point in Hebrews and in this verse, but we as sons and daughters that are heirs with him, we partake as well of the suffering and one day there will be glory to be had as well. As I said, the author is going to quote Psalm 22, and we'll see that, Lord willing, next week, and we, we hear that son-brother language connection. But again, to my sisters in the church, you are not excluded. You, you too have been brought to glory uh, along with the, the men by the work of our older brother, the Son of God, and that's a glorious thing. And now finally, Let's look at the phrase, perfect through suffering. Suffering here in its immediate context, and I want you just to look up again 
at verse 9. Verse 9 said that Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering, hear it, of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting, appropriate, necessary, that he, God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons and daughters to glory, should make the founder, we'll come back to that word at the end, of their salvation perfect through suffering. So right here at this point, the suffering the writer has in mind is that suffering of death. The suffering of death. Again, the writer's going to talk about it many more times in Hebrews. Here's a quick flyby, if you will, from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 10. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, same wording, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, just wait till we get into Melchizedek in the weeks to come. But in what sense was he made perfect? We, we hear that, and so we almost want to make it the opposite. So he was imperfect, and so he was like us, uh, fallen in his humanity and sinful, and he had to be made perfect through oh, obedience. And, and again, on the surface, it, it sounds like that, but no, it says he was made perfect through suffering. And again, we have to understand that words have nuances and words have meaning in context, okay? And this word, perfect, generally speaks of being complete or whole or, or adequate. It's, it's not in its context speaking of being imperfect or, or flawed, okay? It, it's the idea that is of wholeness, adequateness, completeness. And so in Jewish literature, the idea of perfection often applied at times of death, sort of to the perfection or completion of one's life. So Jesus was made perfect through his suffering. Not that he was imperfect or, or he was flawed, but, but he brought to completion what he had come to do. His, his death completed it. Oh, his life did too. His active obedience, his perfect ability to obey God without sin, Tempted like we are, we'll get into that, but never sinning, but, but it was made perfect. It came to completeness on the cross where he suffered in his passive obedience. That was God's plan. And finally then now to this word founder or author of our salvation. What, again, another example of words that, that have nuances. Uh, th- this word can founder, some translations call it author. You, you probably remembered from Hebrews 12 too. We are to keep our eyes on Jesus. This was part of our runner summer series, right? And, and many of us memorized that verse as the, the author of our faith, the author and perfecter. So this word can mean author. It can mean founder. Uh, it can mean trailblazer or guide, um, emphasizing his role in bringing the new covenant people into glory. It, it can also uh, and in, in antiquity, be a word that means champion, if you will, uh, kind of like a divine hero. So uh, here's an illustration I read. Uh, for example, Hercules was called the champion, same word, okay, in antiquity. And in fact, Hercules was called savior, interesting, okay, 
and we use both those words in the Bible to speak of Jesus. He's the author, perfecter, trailblazer, champion, okay? Uh, and of course, savior. And if that's the author's intention, then it's comparable, this writer notes, to, to maybe for us calling Jesus the real Superman. Now that, you know, seems a, a bit crass maybe, you know, and if you're me, he's more like the real Batman because Batman's a better superhero than Superman. But, but I digress into my superhero opinions. But, but see, again, the word has different meanings depending on context. And add this to our growing list of questions one day. What exactly, once we find out from God who wrote this <laughs> up in heaven one day, what did you mean by that word? Was, was Jesus the champion of our salvation? Was he the author, the pioneer, the, 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 the forerunner, the trailblazer? And yes, there's nuances of all of those in using this word. But he is the, the author of our salvation. He's the founder of it. He's the trailblazer. He's the one, right, that we should look to to see how to live the Christian life. How, how did he do it? Now, he did it perfectly, but he did it in step with the Spirit. And so we look to him as our example. Jesus is our example. Now, he's, he's so much more than that. He's our Savior. We need him to be this, this one who, who was perfected through his suffering and who brought salvation and is our great high priest. And see, the scriptures have a lot to say about him, but he definitely is the one we look to that, that pioneered, that trailblazed the way to love God and, and love others. And so we look to him as our example. We look to him as the one who brought all of this. And he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so, church, in this one verse, we see that Jesus is our appropriate founder. It was entirely appropriate and fitting that Jesus should suffer. He is our appropriate founder. There is no one, there's no one like him. And that's who we came out to worship today in the cold. And now it's dry. And there's blue for a little bit longer, maybe, hopefully. That's the one we sang to that we worship and adore. The wonderful, merciful Savior. So I come back to chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, one more time with that application. Because He is our appropriate and fitting founder and Savior who suffered and there's no one like Him, let's not drift from Him. Let's not neglect Him. Let's not make other things the main thing. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Our life is to be all about Jesus. And we need to adore Him and worship Him and, and marvel at so much amazing truth in one verse and just say, God, what must you be like? And help me not drift from or neglect you and the salvation you've brought. So as we're going to sing in a moment... Hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. Hallelujah, we are not alone. We, we are not alone. God really loves us. He loves us so much that he sent his son to be this founder, perfecter, pioneer for us. And he's in us through his spirit. Hallelujah, we are not alone. God really loves us. That should change 
our life today and this week, whatever you're going through, whatever earthly sufferings you're going through, you, you are not alone. Your Savior understands, and we're going to see that in its fullness in the weeks to come. Don't drift from or neglect Him. So would you stand and let me pray, and then Lori and Mary Blakely and Dan are going to come lead us in this, this final song. So Father, in Jesus' name, this one we've been looking at this morning, we give you praise and thanks, and we say hallelujah, praise the Lord. We are not alone. God, you really love us. And when we see it like this in your word, oh, please help us right in this moment now not drift from or neglect you and this salvation, this great salvation. Wherever we need to, I don't know, Lord, make some modifications, whatever, whatever you're calling us to, Spirit, we, we just surrender to that. And, and I pray at least in the immediate context we would sing this next song with, with our whole heart and, and spirit. Hallelujah. We are not alone. God, you, you really love us. Thank you for Jesus our appropriate founder in Jesus' name.